Amen. We are continuing our series through the letters to churches uh, early in the book of Revelation. And this week we will be looking at the message to Sardis in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And I will encourage you to open up your Bibles as we go through these verses. Um, But let me read this for us here at the beginning. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a name of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is on the point of death. For I have not found your works perfect in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Obey it and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Yet you still have a few persons in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. If you conquer, you will be clothed like them in white robes. And I will not blot your name out of the book of life. I will confess your name before my Father and before his angels. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you. May you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever tried explaining to a child that plants are alive? That trees and flowers and grass are living things? It's quite confusing to them. And it's also quite confusing to me, if I'm honest. Biology uh, was my worst class in undergrad and high school. Uh, I was not good at it. So that's a confession up front. But it's interesting to think about what makes a living thing a living thing. And I'm aware that there are doctors and Uh, science professors and lots of people who are way more science-minded than I in the room, and I will keep that in mind. But as we think about what it means to be alive, I want us to look at, at these seven characteristics of living things. Species that are alive share these seven characteristics. Movement, Nutrition, respiration, growth, sensitivity, excretion, reproduction. Things that are alive move in some way, shape, or form. Whether it's like we are or like a plant that orients itself to the sun. All living things need nutrition. Respiration is a chemical reaction to the, the nourishment that a living thing gets. It's a, it's a byproduct, a reaction to the, to the nutrition. Growth, all living things grow. Sensitivity to the environment. 
the, the ability to detect what is going on around is a characteristic of a living thing. And all living things have a way to get rid of waste, things that are no longer useful. And all species that are living as a species reproduce. These are the characteristics of living things. I'm sure there are other things, and I'm sure I might get an email this week from people who know more about this than I do. But the the church in Sardis was not alive. The church in Sardis had the appearance of life. In this letter, the message begins, I know your works. You have a name of being alive, but you are dead. And Scott nailed it in the children's message about what this message is to this church. That there are things that make it look like you have life. But Jesus knows what's going on in the inner life and that it's decaying in Sardis. Now we've talked in weeks past because we've looked at positive letters, that these words, I know, the way this message begins, and they all begin this way. Jesus says, I know. That's a really encouraging thing for people who are suffering. These letters to the churches that are being persecuted, when they hear Jesus say, I know what you're going through. How comforting is that to hear? So yes, these words, I know, are a comfort to the suffering faithful. But they are a threat to liars, like the church in Sardis. See, Jesus saying, I know, to the church in Sardis is actually a scary thing for them, not a comforting thing. Because Jesus says he knows what's going on on the inside. I know your works. You have a name or a reputation of being alive. But, in fact, you are dead. Now, thankfully, the letter does not just end with this negative statement that the church is dead. But next, this message includes five imperative verbs, five commands, things that the church is being told to do. They're not suggestions. (laughs) They're not requests. They're ultimatums. Do this or else. And we'll see the or else in a minute. But the five commands, starting in verse 2, says, wake up. We don't typically say wake up to dead things, do we? But guess who does? Jesus. Multiple times in the Gospels. Him and his disciples come across a funeral procession at one point. And he looks at the young man that's being carried, his dead body being carried out on a mat. And he touches him, which is a no-no in their society. And says, get up, wake up. He calls Lazarus out of the grave. And he himself rises from the dead. And so when Jesus pronounces the church in Sardis is dead, that's not the end of the story. In fact, in the gospel, death is never the end of the story. 
in the gospel of Jesus Christ, death does not have the last word. And so this church is pronounced dead, but he says, wake up. That's the first imperative verb, the first command. The second is strengthen what remains and is on the point of death. So once you wake up, there's actually this flickering of hope, this flickering of life that still exists. And Jesus says, take that and strengthen it. Then he has a little sidebar. He says, take that and strengthen it. For I have not found your works perfect in the sight of my God. And this word perfect carries with it a weight of completeness. He's saying, I look at your church and I see all that you are doing that gives you a name of being alive, that gives you this, uh, this, this, um, this concept of being alive. But I have not found them to be complete. These works that make it look like you're alive are, are, are uncompleted. There is something lacking about them. Verse 3 continues with the other three imperative verbs. Remember then what you have received and heard. This church didn't start out dead. This church started out alive. It heard something that made it alive. It heard the gospel and was alive. And so this Imperative is to remember what you heard that gave you life. The fourth one is obey it. <laughs> Don't just remember it, but obey it. And then the last one, which is interesting that it is at the end, if there's uh, an order here, the last one is to repent. Repent. So after you have woken up and strengthened what remains, after you remember what you have heard, and after you obey it, Jesus' message to the church in Sardis is to repent. After you've done all these things to be back alive, you have a need to repent. Even a church that is alive and healthy still has the need for repentance. So the problem has been identified. You have a name of being alive, but in fact you are dead. And then a solution is offered in the form of five commands. Problem, solution, and then the church has two options. Uh, before we go on to these two options, I want to ask, what are some things today that would give a church the appearance of life. This letter doesn't go into details of what gave the church in Sardis a name of being alive. Some people have theories that it, it used to be such a great church, it was just living on this reputation and just stopped doing anything. Um, but we don't really know. But we can ask the question today what would give a church the appearance of rich, vibrant life? Some of the things I thought of were a nice building, beautiful music, abundant giving, mission trips, worship attendance, dynamic preaching. All of these things 
could give a church the appearance of life. And all of these things are, in fact, good things. But they could be hiding spiritual decay underneath. All of these things that are good don't necessarily mean that a church is alive. So after Jesus gives these five uh, commands, these five imperative verbs, do these things, we have two kind of chunks of Scripture left. This letter is structured really, like, tightly. And so both of these chunks uh, left in the letter have an if statement and a then statement. Now, the word then you won't see in your English translation, but I want you to think of it like this. Jesus says, if you do this, I will do this. There's an if statement and an I will statement. And then he says, well, then if you do this instead, then I will do this. In both cases, Jesus is saying that he will act. Jesus is going to do something. So the two options begin with the negative option. If you do not wake up, I will, remember that if and I will. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. When I was in elementary school, my mom picked my older brother and I up from school one day. And we got to our house in Jackson, Mississippi, where we lived at the time. And pulled into our carport and looked over. And the door, which had a glass window, was shattered. And my mom did... uh, the right thing initially, the first step, she sent me and my older brother to the neighbor's house. Good move, mom. Well well done. And then she ran inside. And she called my dad. And my dad said, have you called the police yet? (laughs) But this, this idea of being robbed, this thief coming, is terrifying. No thief calls ahead and say, says, I'm thinking about coming between the hours of 8 and 12. No, they come when you do not expect it. And they're coming to take something away from you. This thief stole a a camcorder that would sit on your shoulder, a VCR player, which was very valuable at that time, and all my mom's jewelry from from her mother, which you can't put value on. It was violating. This thief took what we had. And I believe Jesus is not just saying that he will come like a thief because they won't know, which is what he says after that, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come. But there's something that will be taken away from the church in Sardis. Sardis is... uh, One of two negative letters of these seven that we're looking at, uh, that that actually the church is not commended for anything at all. The only two are, are Sardis and Laodicea. Interestingly enough, those are the only two of these cities that are not occupied in modern times. They're no longer even cities. It seems as if something has been taken away. The negative option is to not wake up. If you do not wake up, Jesus says, I will come like a thief. 
and you will not know what hour I will come to you. Sardis knows what it's like to have a thief come to destroy. Because uh, this, this verb Jesus uses to wake up also means like be alert, pay attention. And Sardis had this fortress that sat on a hill that could not be taken as long as you watched the walls. As long as they paid attention, they were fine. No battle could defeat them. But when Jesus says to them, I will come like a thief because you're not waking up, that would have brought back some bad memories to the people in Sardis. Because twice, twice in Sardis's history, their walls were defeated because they weren't paying attention. In 549 B.C. and in 218 B.C., people climbed the walls, and when the people of Sardis woke up, they were prisoners. Their freedom was taken from them because of their lack of alertness. See, in this letter, this metaphor is being used used that they would have understood deeply. Be alert, because if not, I will come like a thief. It's happened to you before. And then there's a transition to the positive option. That's option number one. You could continue to be dead or asleep, not being alert. It's not a very good option. But in a transition to the positive option in verse 4, we get this statement. Yet... You have still a few persons in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. Clothes being dirty uh, was very important back then and still culturally is important today. But back then, people would be refused from even coming to worship if they were trying to come in with dirty clothes. It signified the purity of the person. And throughout the New Testament, and specifically the book of Revelation, the metaphor of cleanliness is used to talk about the purity of a person. And so Jesus says, you still have a few people in Sardis who have clean clothes, And they will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. And then we get the second if statement. The first was, if you do not wake up, and the I will statement to follow was, I will come like a thief. The second one, option number two, is if you conquer. If you do all of those five things, those five imperatives, commands, if you do all of those, you will be clothed like them in white robes. Skipping ahead a few chapters in Revelation, we get to see a little bit more about these white robes. In chapter 7, verse 9, and then verses 13 and 14, we hear this as a part of the continued revelation, uh, the continued vision um, from John. After this I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the 
throne and before the Lamb. This picture of all people coming together before God's throne. And then it says, robed in white with palm branches in their hands. The multitudes coming together to worship God clothed in white. Down in verse 13, we get an explanation. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these robed in white and where have they come from? I said to him, Sir, you are the one that knows. Then he said to me, These are they who have come out of the great ordeal. These are those who have come out of the great ordeal. Sardis is in the midst of the great ordeal. And they are given a way out of it. They are told that their soiled clothes can be made clean. If you conquer, you will be clothed like them in white robes. These are those who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white. In order for them to be made white, that means they previously were not white. The people with the soiled clothes, the people with the dirty clothes, still have the possibility of being made clean. You might be like me and oftentimes think about how unworthy we are to be in the presence of God. And here in chapter 7, we're told about this multitude of people in the presence of God. And I think because of my sin, because of, of my, my nature, because of who I am and my past, I am not worthy to be a part of these multitudes of people in white robes. But we're told that these are people who have been made clean. Not people who were always clean. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Because of the sacrifice that Christ made. Those with soiled clothes, those with dirty clothes, can have white robes. And then we get the I will statements that accompany this if statement. If you conquer, you will be clothed like them. And I will not blot your name out of the book of life. In fact, I will confess your name before my father and before his angels. I will not blot your name out of the book of life. I will confess your name before my father and before his angels. I want Jesus to confess my name before the Father because I'm not worthy to do it myself. And we have a Savior who sits at the right hand of God the Father. And he wants to tell God the Father about us. And then we get this closing benediction, which is very interesting. Verse 6, it says, Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And I love this because of how inclusive it is. It doesn't just say, let anyone in Sardis who's listening. It doesn't just say, let anyone in first century 
who is listening. It says, let anyone. It's inclusive to all people through the ages. And then the end of it is inclusive too. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying, not just to the church in Sardis, but to the churches. This isn't a message just for one people at one point in time. And for the sake of a sermon series, we have to break these letters up, but they're all one cohesive unit. The message is, listen to what the Spirit is saying to all of these churches. That word is plural. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And so I want to ask the question, what does it mean for us, Georgetown First United Methodist Church, to listen to what the Spirit is saying to Sardis? And on Friday, as I was going through this message again, I, I was thinking about the, the, the title of the sermon, Are You Alive? And I really wished it wasn't too late to make a slight change to say, Are We Alive? Because this isn't really written to a person, it's written to a people. And so the questions we have to wrestle with together are a we question, not just an I question. But as we think about this, I want us to do both to think about what is the Spirit saying to us through this letter as a people, but also think about what is it saying to you? I think too often I have judged myself based on things that give the appearance of life. And too often I have looked at the health of a church based on things that give merely the appearance of life. And so let's return for just a moment to the seven characteristics of living things. And I want to ask these questions. Are we as a church a movement? Or are we just a monument? See, a monument can stand for something and recall something that's happened in the past. But a movement is pointing towards something and moving people in a direction. Are we as a church a movement? Moving people somewhere. Are we a place of nutrition where we all come together and feast and get nourishment and encourage nourishment throughout the week? Is our worship a natural reaction to what happens in our inner lives? If respiration is the chemical reaction to nourishment, then as we are nourished, is our worship an outflowing of that? And are we content where we are, or are we continuing to grow? And are we sensitive to the needs of those around us? Are we willing to give up things that are no longer healthy or are no longer working? And perhaps most importantly, are we reproducing disciples? And as I thought about these questions, 
There were many times when I said, yes, by the grace of God, much of this is happening. Not because of the works of any man or woman, but by the grace of God, there are healthy things in our midst. There is life here. But also there could be more life. And I want to leave you with this thought. If this morning you are here and feel like this message to Sardis could have been written to you, if you are feeling that maybe even if you portray a spiritually healthy life on the outside, that perhaps you're experiencing spiritual death on the inside, if that's you, I want you to remember that we serve a God that raises the dead. That we serve a God that looks at death and says, you will not win. We serve a God that can look directly at us and say, I know the things in your life that lead to death. And I can bring new life in you. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Let's pray together. Father, help us to hear this hard message that was given to Sardis. Help us to rejoice in the life that we have and to accept grace for new life to come. God, thank you for being a God that raises the dead. That we are no longer dead in our sin, but you look at us and you speak life just like you have done from the moment of creation. That through speaking, new life bursts. So God, areas of our life where we are experiencing spiritual decay, Speak life into us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.